Hi, and welcome to Background Noises. My name is Nadia Sheikh. I'm an independent indie pop rock artist, and in this podcast, I am interviewing the unheard voices of the music industry, from promoters to venue managers, sound engineers, you name it. been deeply affected by the consequences of the pandemic and with this podcast I just wanted to do my little bit to help voice their issues their experiences their thoughts and to just have a really good conversation with very interesting people Uh, so thank you for joining me and let's get it started Welcome to Background Noises. I am uh, incredibly excited to introduce today's guest. He's an all-rounder in the music industry. He is the co-owner of the Tombridge Wells Forum, the owner of Outstanding Music, a music company that specializes in alternative Latin music. He's a fellow uh, of the Royal Society of Arts. He's spoken at South by Southwest and many other conferences. He's managed bands like Spanish singer-songwriter Michael Makovsky. And he's also the CEO of various music charities, including Rhythmics and the Music Venue Trust. So please welcome Mark David. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have you here today. So thank you so much for taking your time, uh, taking time out to, to just chat to me because I know you're really busy. Um, just to start, your track record is insane uh, and you've done so many things. So this is probably a tricky question, but... Out of everything you've done, all the roads you've taken in the music industry, what do you enjoy the most? Um, I'm still really driven by live music, if I'm honest. Uh, you know, just seeing a, a band in a small venue, being very, very close to the band, um, especially if it's like a new band or something I haven't seen or heard before. Um, I don't even necessarily have to like the band. <laughs> Like the, I like the feeling of something new, and I, I love that feeling that you get when the band and the audience is coming together, and you know something something special happens, and it happens a lot in small rooms. So that's really my my big driver, I guess. That's really cool. Have you got like a, a highlight of a gig that you you went to see? I don't know seeing a band that no one knew for the first time and then suddenly they became Arctic Monkeys or something like that, I don't know. Um, yeah, but generally the ones I like don't become the Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, no, it's not a bad thing. It's generally, I, I do, I think if you see an awful lot of live music, and I've seen an awful lot of live music, then your tastes tend towards the kind of unusual and, and like slightly weird, like... I guess the, the band the band that that's happened to me the most recently of is um, probably Idols. Um, oh, brilliant! I saw I saw probably four five years ago now, in uh, and I was with strange enough I was with Steve Lamac from uh, BBC Six, 
And I think we were in the Bristol Exchange, which is a very small venue in Bristol, like 200 people. Yeah. And we were sat, we were still at the bar at the front, which is not actually in the venue. I think we were getting a drink and Steve actually said, oh, who's on tonight? And the barman said, my band, you've got to come and see my band. And it was Dev from Idols, who was um, used to work behind the bar of the exchange. And I'd actually seen them, and so had Steve, two or three times. But we went to go and check out Bam because the guy would have been nice and was very friendly. And between the last time I'd seen them and the time that I was seeing this time, that band had found its purpose. And, it, and, and felt radically different and felt suddenly like something huge was going to happen, which eventually it did. Um, but yeah, there are certain points when you see a band. One of my favourite bands that I saw was a band called Mr. Ray's Wigworld. Uh, they, were, they had something extraordinary. They were a Liverpudlian band in the mid-90s. And every show I saw them play was remarkable. I mean, astonishing. But they never went anywhere and never really got anywhere. I don't even think you can find this stuff online. But they really? did a kind of psychedelic garage, almost like a jam session thing. And it was absolutely musically stunning and had an atmosphere of tension and aggression around it, which was just like amazing. Really. There's so much good music. It's, it's mental because I, I live in London and there's so much music on offer that you can literally, you can just walk into any bar venue anywhere any day of the week and you can just be amazed by what you see and they might not like maybe no one knows them and it's kind of like how yeah i think there's a, there is i tell you the, the more the more mainstream everything gets the more that it drags towards the center and you get i mean the tiny amount of artists that are making a living out of making music only you know recording music for example is now tiny but actually creates a really amazing buzz at the outer edges of that do you know what i mean like yeah the like underground the under the underground gets dangerous kind of yeah it gets more sense. and more underground and then you get like um another band it's a, a band called fat white family yeah. um and i saw them i mean that's must be um, eight or ten years ago and it was so chaotic and anarchic it almost wasn't even music it was just a sort of wall of noise that came from the 70s and the 60s and the 80s all at the same time and it was great because you just watched it and went i, I don't know what this is i go like, <laughs> i yeah. love that thing. i love to i love to feel like i don't know what yeah. something that's a really important thing yeah that's i mean i i remember seeing um the struts just after i moved yeah. to london um, and I saw them, I saw them at Coco and they were doing this Isle of Wight reunion thing. So it's quite a big venue. And then I, I bought, because I want tickets for that. And then I bought tick. I met them. Um, and then I bought tickets to see them in Camden, at uh, Dingwalls in Camden. And then obviously I, I followed them and stuff and then kind of didn't follow them so much for a while. And then realized they were supporting uh, the Foo Fighters all over America. And they were, yeah. like, Luke, the singer was singing with them. And it's like the, the, the gems you can see in in small venues oh yeah i mean i mean, I mean the, the other reverse answer to your question is probably easy to ask me which major band of the last 20 or even 30 years i have not seen <laughs> i think i've i mean a Coldplay, oasis adele ed sheer i've seen all of them play in front of 20 or 30 people that's brilliant uh, and, and that and that says a lot because these massive stars don't suddenly happen 
these massive stars come from small venues and any any good artist that has has made a career a long a long lasting career will, will tell you that they need those small venues to to learn how to gig you don't just you're not born learning how to gig you you can have talent you can have a stage presence but you need to work harder and you, and you need to be in front of an audience to see how an audience reacts to what you do so i think your, your thing of the struts was quite important for that actually i've, I've seen the, the struts be very bad indeed <laughs> <laughs> and then later on learn a load of stagecraft and how to engage with an audience and the material got better and you know everything about that band improved and and got to the point where you thought oh yeah that supporting the Foo Fighters that makes sense now like you know you could look at that and go yeah okay but I, I often say that bands need small venues because bands need somewhere to be shit it's true yeah. absolutely true <laughs> everybody who gets up first of all is going to do something that probably isn't going to be big probably isn't going to be the best thing they're ever going to do and it's that ability to get out you know, even in London could be quite judgmental, but you get into some of these smaller towns and even into villages around the country and you can go there and you can really experiment and you can play to eight people on a Tuesday night, but maybe six of them really love you. And that that essence of doing that is what gives you long-term careers. And that's one of the things that I think we've seen really happening in the last 10 to 15 years, the bands that didn't do that tend to come and go very quickly because they don't have that bedrock of support. They don't have the buy-in from the audience. And you see these bands escalated up really fast. They're suddenly in front of eight to 12,000 people. They don't really have the skills and they don't have the, the audience support and the enthusiasm from fans that you need to pull that kind of level of show off. You know, I, I really think bands need to play in front of 50, then 100, then 200, then 300, then 500. Then it's like, just keep going all the way up those steps because there's something to be learned at every step. But the small venues is the first step that everybody can take. And it's, it's incredibly important to have that first step available. Yeah, I completely agree. And I was, I, well, I read a while back, I read an article. Um, it was an interview with Dave Grohl, funny enough. Um, and he was saying that this... He, there's so many artists nowadays that become an online sensation overnight and then they're put in front of these huge audiences and they don't know how to perform because they've never been in front of an audience mm-hmm. um, apart from maybe talking into their phone. So it's it's what you said, it's a craft. It's a craft. and It's the, it's the YouTubers phenomenon, you know, that actually, yeah, it's possible to become like a huge YouTube star and it's possible even to become a huge YouTube star with music. None of those people are being booked to headline Glastonbury because, you know, you, you, you need a whole set of other skills to headline Glastonbury. A hundred million hits on YouTube is not going to give you the skills to headline Glastonbury. Frankly, hundred million hits on YouTube doesn't give you the skills to headline the bog shit in, in Nantwich. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. These are two completely different set of skills. could be argued that the more time you spend getting clicks on the internet, the less of those skills you actually learn. And, and the less able you are to deliver like a live performance that's genuinely engaging, you know, they're not a transferable set of skills. I don't, there are probably people who are exceptions to that, but you know, that I, I would, I would strongly encourage all budding musicians and young musicians who want to have a long career in the industry. You know, a long career is not the same as a, 
you know, an up and down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly headlining a festival, but then my career is over. But if you want a long career and you want to make music for a, a long period of time, it pays to put in the work at the beginning. Yeah. And the human connections you get with you get with people is for example, um just taking on from experience, I um I just went well before the pandemic hit, we're really lucky. We we supported Stereophonics on a European tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we got called back to do so we did Europe, we didn't do the UK um arena tour, but we got called back for three arena shows. And obviously the Europe shows were quite small. So after every night we were going out to the merch and we were meeting people from all over the world, um, French people, German people, that then went on. And because we gave them that time and that connection, they went on and followed on the internet. And those are yeah. the people who have been following, um, following all, all, the, all through the pandemic, tuning into the live streams. And then, uh, this is talking small venues, then when we played the arenas, we weren't able to go out to the merch because it's so big. You can't stand when 15,000 people are coming out. So small venues are like a little piece of magic where the music meets the people and it's it's just magic. There's no other way. And also if you get to the arenas, the arenas have a completely different atmosphere when they are full of 8,000 people that you met in a small venue because the buy-in that you get from those people when you met them they're, they're pleased for you when you're playing the arena. That it's it's their success as well, and yeah. and they want you to carry on being a success. When you mentioned stereophonics, I put I put stereophonics on at the Tunbridge Wells Forum in front of about 150 people. When they got, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the band, you know, but of the music, they're nice people, but it doesn't do a lot for me. I'm really pleased when I see them selling our arenas. You know, I, because I remember them coming through the venue and everybody who saw them that night remembers coming through through the venue. And, you know, I, I, there's something about that human connection and the buy-in that you get at that point that lasts. I'm, I'm, fr- I'm friends now with musicians I first saw when I was 12 or 13, you know, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm, old, I'm, I'm old enough for that to be a very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, I still feel really... I still feel really strongly proud of them when they're doing good music or when, you know, when they're playing a great gig because, because I bought in all that time ago, you know, and and it stays with you in a way that seeing a band, you know, respect to you for playing those shows. Fantastic. But at the the arena shows, you're not going to build that fan connection that people will be, you'll be talking to somebody in 20 years and they'll say, Oh, I first saw you at this tiny gig, you know, that's the kind of fan. Yeah buying there is at those places yeah and it's it's when you, when you ask someone i don't know the same question i asked you before what's i don't know a remarkable gig or a special gig you saw usually tends to be the small ones yeah yeah, yeah. i'm trying to think of a big gig i don't i'm not a huge fan of big gigs but if you're gonna do a big gig you gotta do what um brendan yuri at panic at the disco does which is you know you gotta do the flying piano <laughs> that goes in nine directions sure. <laughs> I, I don't mind that that as a spectacle it's not it's not aimed at me but i can stand there and think okay this is quite clever <laughs> i mean it's the crew that do it are to be admired the lighting engineer the sound engineer, yeah. everybody involved in that it's a huge production it's not really aimed at me i i like that i like that human thing you mentioned i like i like <laughs> i like to feel the sweat of the singer hit me in the face yeah. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, the the reason why I started this podcast, which is not something I usually do, <laughs> is because I myself, like many other artists and um, and people involved in music, have been affected by the pandemic in terms of shows being cancelled, um, tours, festivals. Um, suddenly, you, you can't even busk, per se. But when I was talking to these venues, the the amount of struggle they're going through, it just I just thought, what can I do to to help? Even if it's just raise awareness to people that might not know what's going on for venues, sound engineers, production, lighting, as you said, everyone is involved. So you being here is mental because you are the CEO of um, Music Venue Trust. Um, and you also launched a campaign called Save Our Venues. That, just a bit of background for anyone listening. Uh, it encompasses over 220 projects and has raised almost £3 million. Um, so tell us a bit more about being the CEO of, of a company, well, a, not a company, a charity like this, and what does a day in your life look like? Um, at the moment, chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the situation is very serious, as you've said. You know, I mean, actually, right now we're about to enter what I would describe as the real red alert phase. We have, in the UK, we have 900 venue members of something called the Music Venues Alliance that we represent. Um, about half of those have bids into government for the financial support they need to get them through to the other side of Christmas. And all of the decisions on what they're going to receive um, will be made in really the next month um, but a typical day here at the moment consists of um, screaming at the government uh, shouting at the media to carry stories about what's going on trying to raise the funding that we can to get people to the next phase and then a lot of it is actually again I think this podcast is going to be mainly about personal connections because a lot of what we do now is is frankly a little bit like counselling for venues We've got a lot of people who are very stressed out, incredibly anxious, um, and it's incredibly personal to them. I mean, I've, I've, I've got venue owners. <clears throat> we take somebody like Jeff Horton at the 100 Club in London. That's his life's work. His, his aunt took over the 100 Club in 1964. It was handed to his father in 1976. He then took it over in the early 90s. Uh, his daughter and son both work there. That's their, their family business. It's you know, been going since 1964. That's under threat of closure. I've got people who live in their venue. So when we talk about them losing the venue, we're talking about a number of them that potentially will become homeless. Um, We've got people like Paul at Hallodelphi, who built a venue essentially on the side of his parents' detached, semi-detached house <laughs> on a street in Hull. It's, you know, 35 years ago. It's, it's his life's work. And to have all of that in the position where it can all be taken away from you is, is obviously incredibly stressful for those people. We have, a, we have an incredible team here. Um, of, of venue owners that came forward to kind of help other venue owners. We have coordinators all the way across the UK. But a lot of their work is, uh, you know, tragically is honestly taking 
tearful, emotional phone calls from people who are close to losing everything. So it's a very tough time. I know it's a very tough time for everybody who's affected by the crisis. And certainly in our industry, we are obviously our main our main thing to worry about is the venues. That's that's what we're set up to do. But we're equally aware that musicians, crew, production staff, even the security, the people who work the door, the people who work the bar. We're talking to hundreds of thousands of people that have been told by the government they're not allowed to work and millions across the world. We have sister organisations in the whole of Europe, in America. Everybody's in the same boat. Live music is at a standstill and we don't know exactly when we're going to be able to do it again in a way that makes economic sense. So we're very... It's a very depressing conversation, to be honest, but we're, you know, what's our typical day like? Mostly it's handling a series of worries and concerns that actually what's happening to people individually, what's happening to sectors of that, and what's happening to the venues as a whole, and, and what, what can we possibly do to prevent the worst outcome? It's, it's really sad because a lot of people just see it as like, oh yeah, it's, it's live music, but it's, it's just like entertainment or it's something you do because you like it. But these are families, they're the people that need to feed their kids. Mm. And it seems like the whole picture is being masked a bit by the shining lights and the nightlife. It, it's not really, it's it's families and, and family businesses. And, and they're just not, there's no way they can open because even with certain restrictions, yeah, you can do live gigs now, but with all the restrictions you've put in, it's not, I'm losing money even if I open, so why would I open? Well, the, the numbers are that venues, are, uh, because of the government restrictions in the UK, venue capacity is down by 75%. Their hours are now down by 50 to 75%. So, you know, if you take a, a 200 capacity venue that normally trades between 8 and 1 in the morning, has now got 50 people in it for two hours. <laughs> It just, I mean, it just doesn't take a genius to work out. I mean, you all know, it, nobody who's in this sector, nobody who's in the grassroots sector is doing this to make huge amounts of money anyway. And, and honestly, if you are, I, I genuinely suggest that you get a chance. In the wrong place. <laughs> You're in the wrong place, all right? We don't have musicians. The, the average musician, even the successful ones working in our sector, are living off sums of 20,000 or less a year. You know, those those are the successful ones. We've got plenty of just doing it for whatever they can get out of each show. We've got, I mean, you know, we, we did a survey. Um, we do an annual survey every year. The last one we did, we didn't reveal one of the statistics, which was that if you work out how much money there is and how much people are being paid, everybody would have to stop working because nobody is earning the minimum wage that's legally mandated in the UK as the minimum you can pay anybody. And that's yeah. everybody from the venue operator and owner down to the musician who plays bass. And that, if you divide it all out, there wouldn't be enough money for all of them to earn minimum wage. You know, I mean, it's, so I, you look at that and how precarious it all is anyway. But then you got you got to go back to what we started talking about in the first place. What we started talking about in the first place is how important it is. You know, without without that place to go where you can perform your first song that you wrote yourself in front of the first person that gets to hear it without that foot that you put on the stage. There, there are there are no Ed Sheeran's, there's no Adele's, there's no Coldplay's, there's no Oasis, there's no Arctic Monkeys, 
You can scratch out the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who out of contemporary culture if they didn't have somewhere to go and be shit. As I've, yeah. you know, that's the whole. That's the whole point. You've got to go somewhere. You've got to do that. And without that, you're not just losing. You're losing sixty years worth of of contemporary culture. But the the very important thing is you're losing the next sixty years. You're losing the opportunity for people like you and musicians like you to go somewhere with the stuff that you're creating to get to the next stage. And you know, and what are we losing over? That's that's my big thing that I, I spend quite a lot of every day. What do you do every day? I spend quite a lot of every day explaining how economically tiny the investment required for this not to collapse is in comparison to the amount of money that's actually going to be made if you stop it from collapsing. Well, the UK music industry turns over £5.2 billion a year. The entire circuit, the whole of the grassroots music is in the UK. You could prevent them closing down until next March for £100 million. For £100 million, that probably sounds like a lot of money. Out of £5.2 billion, not even 2%. It's less than 2% of the amount of money that we make out of having a music industry of this size. We make this amount of money. It's less money than Ed Sheeran turned over on his last tour. It's less money than Muse turned over on their live tours virtually every year. And we can't, we, you're telling me the government can't fight? Ed Sheeran, God bless him, still pays standard UK tax. He's one of those musicians who actually thinks you should pay tax. He's paid more tax than that on his shows in the last three years. One person. So the UK government has received more money out of just Ed Sheeran in the last three years than it needs to invest in the whole of the grassroots economy, all 900 venues, to prevent them from closing down. And you know what they'll do if they don't close down? They'll produce them another Ed Sheeran, and another one, and another one. They'll produce them an Adele, and a Coldplay. So I, to me, it's just, I, I feel very passionate about it, you can tell. I feel very passionate about it because I want to go and stand in a, a small, tiny venue and let the singers sweat at me in the face. <laughs> but you know what? It doesn't even make any economic sense to let them close down. And a government minister this morning said, we, we're not going to do anything because we're only going to protect viable businesses. Well, the reason these businesses aren't viable right now... Because they're not you, getting help. You've told them <laughs> to be closed. That's why they're not viable. And, and, and if you think they're not viable now, you want to see what the music industry looks like in five or ten years' time. When, it, when the whole thing won't be viable, there won't be anybody except the older artists. You know, and that's it. Obviously, small venues are sort of manageable, even though, obviously, if you put in restrictions, if there's 200 people, you can kind of control 200 people. But when there's 200,000 people... Yeah. It's a great question. kind of things? Yeah, again, you, you ask me what we do all day. We spend, we spend all day having these conversations, trying to work out, okay, well... The general consensus of opinion is that logically thinking about the way that everything closed down, it should open up in reverse order. And what that means is that a lot of people feel that perhaps small venues might get back to manage something like full capacity reasonably early next year, maybe maybe February or March or April, you know, that, that bit there. We then think that, and that would probably be, by April, might be like up to 500 capacity. Then you've got what, how long it takes to get from 500 capacity considered to be manageable up to maybe 10,000, which is like, your, you know, your smaller arenas or your, your bigger console halls. 
we don't know, but I, I, can it can it be done? If the small venues, if the 200 capacity venue opens in late February, is it possible to imagine that 50,000 people can be attending a festival by by July? And I don't think we know. A lot of it depends. The other thing we do is I spend a lot of time trying to learn. And, and the thing I'm learning at the moment is um, uh, I'm becoming an expert on vaccines and public health. Um, <laughs> Or certainly, I've read more medical documents and scientific evidence in the last six months than I read in the entire rest of my life. Uh, and at the moment, uh, me and John Robb, a journalist in Manchester, are running a little game on Facebook in Facebook Messenger about top 10 favorite vaccines, uh, which we have as a, like it's the new, it's the new charts. You know, we don't we don't have favorite bands anymore. We have favorite vaccines. The vaccines, <laughs> that's, uh, that's funny. But I mean, the, the festivals coming back. I I don't want to I don't want to say that it's not possible without a vaccine. I think it would be extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I don't think it's impossible, but the investment would need to be huge, absolutely huge, because you'd have to test everybody at the point of entry track them and trace them all the way through the festival have removal measures if anything in their condition changed it's an extra i mean you'd be looking maybe reading could do that you know something around the hundred thousand mark that is already very well run but i don't know about you know your, your twenty thousand cat festivals i think it would be exceptionally difficult to do so I think vaccine is the answer to your question. Yeah. Same thing with, well, Sam Fender did this gig uh, in Newcastle with the, um, like the little sections, the bubbles or platforms, yes. however you want to call it. Um, do you see that's being something that could be done um, at a greater scale or is well, it just not really cost uh, effect effective? For... Uh, we, know, we know Steve that was doing it. SSD was the promoters up there. And they, I mean, that's an amazing thing to have done. Very, very pleased. They tried something. Everybody should be trying to do something. Um, they're not making any money out of it, I don't think. I mean, uh, they, they managed to get something together because they want to get people working and it works. So that's great. Yeah. Um, well, the interesting thing is that people's reactions. We got, we got a number of members who were putting on socially distanced gigs for 20 or 30 or, you know, maximum 60 people. I think... Ali at the Clapham, Clapham Grand has managed to get, I think, nearly 200 in an 1,800 capacity venue. That's pretty good. Um, people are really, actually, people are surprisingly enthusiastic. <laughs> I thought the audiences would be quite down on it. But in fact, after six months, they're just so pleased that there's anything. You know, that I, I think that's good. Um, would they be, can we imagine Reading being done like that? I, I don't know why you do that, if I'm honest. Uh, I, the whole purpose of Reading is a kind of expanded version of what I've said to you about small venues, isn't it? You want to be yeah. right in the middle of a wildly enthusiastic crowd. Yeah. Watch, you know, you want to watch Youngblood kick off in front of 20,000 people of which you're one of a part. You don't want yeah. to see it. You want to stand on your own platform six metres away from somebody else. Yeah. It's I not, mean, part of the work. part of the festival experience. It's a bit kind of like the sweat in your face, but my my image of festivals is that I'm not I'm not very short, but I'm not very tall. And I've been to Benicassim Festival many years because um, it's my local festival, and it kind of like 
I remember being at seeing Blur, uh, song two, when it kicks in. It's the biggest mosh pit I've ever been in my entire life, not even willingly. I started in one end, and then suddenly you've got these like two meter guys like everywhere, and then you got sweat of everyone just around you. But there's just like it's an experience. You, you get an experience out of it, and then just sing, singing with a random stranger at the top of your lungs, your favorite song, and. You don't get that if you're separated. No, I, I think that's, I mean, it's a different type of experience. Like I say, I'm very, I'm very admiring of the fact that they tried to do it. And I think it's a good thing to have done. I mean, unfortunately, of course, the last couple were cancelled because of new social distance rules, a local lockdown where they were, which is a shame. But I mean, I think, I, I, I think it's very important that we, we're a very creative and innovative sector. You know, we we that's that's I mean that's the whole point. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great to see people trying to do things, but um, what we really want to see is the actual thing we value come back. And I, I think anything that we can find that enables us to do whatever testing it is, whatever safety measures it is, and, and hopefully eventually a vaccine. Well, that's really where we need to be headed. You know, trying to rethink the whole thing. You said you've been doing streaming gigs. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, but I, I, you know, we've done we've done a fair few. We were actually running our own TV show, effectively, eleven o'clock every morning at one point, with guests coming on and everything, and it was great. It wasn't. Yeah, that was static. one of my questions. That was one one of my questions. Um, what do you think of live streaming? Do you think that could be detrimental to venues coming back and and being? Because it's so easy to just go on your phone and you just go on someone's Instagram, and then suddenly you've got your favorite artist singing you some never heard before songs from their living room obviously you don't get the experience but do you think people get used to it and become lazy and not want to like pay for a ticket and go out do you know i'm going to say exactly the opposite i think that i think the streaming gigs is actually a really useful tool to remind <laughs> people exactly what it is they're missing i think that's the point i think that they what that reminds you is that you're not with your friends you're not in a crowd you're not getting the same buzz out of it as you did it's a different experience and I, we're certainly looking at whether streaming gets added to the things that we already have as another tool that you know musicians can use to reach more people but the truth is that no it, I, I don't see it as being a replacement i think it actually weirdly for the venues a lot of them are coming around to realizing I should be doing some more streaming so that people really remember <laughs> what it is to be at the venue rather than to have this like little experience on your phone, which is nice, but it's not the same at all. Yeah, that's great. And th this kind of like brings me back to what we were talking about before. It's, it's kind of like music with the government and everything. It's, it's been the forgotten sector because they're saying we can't support viable um, businesses that are not viable. But over lockdown... I had so many messages because I was doing regular, I was doing uh, live streams every week. Um, and I got so many messages of people sort of thanking me for doing these live streams because that's what they were missing. And, and, and people, so many people saying that music, books, films, all the arts and, and everything that's cultural was what kept them going through being in your house 24-7 yeah. for three, four months. And suddenly it seems that those things that helped people get through this massive mayhem are the ones that are getting forgotten now that we're getting out of it. I, I completely agree. 
I, there's there's a great meme doing the rounds today actually of somebody just saying like okay if you don't understand the viability of this temporary viability of this being completely meaningless just turn off your netflix and your streams and your phones and because there'll be no content you know about nobody can build a viable career simply out of out of well you're an artist you know there's no such thing as a viable career for 90% of artists, 95% of artists on Spotify. You can't, yeah. you can't make the money yeah. at Spotify. You, you need to be out there. You need to be selling physical products. You need to be playing shows. It's just a fact. That's the, yeah. the reality of the thing. And, and, and take away that part without going off on another one of my, my brands. One of the things I'd like to understand out of this crisis is how 25% of the music industry being closed down. The live music industry is worth 1.1 billion. The music industry itself is worth 5.2 billion every year. So it's less than 25% of the industry is closed down. Why is it that 90% of all the musicians I know are completely broke? Where's, where's the other 75% of the money? Because they all have streams and they all sell records and they all do everything else. Where's that money going? I mean, I think that's a huge question for the UK music industry. One quarter of our business shuts down and all the musicians are completely broke. That can't be right. What have we got wrong there? You know, this should be opening up some really big questions about where money comes from. Because I can tell you from our point of view, from the small sector point of many point of view, these are our, you're our friends. Musicians are our friends. These, the crew are our friends and everybody around this circuit, they're, they're our friends and our colleagues. But wow, this is a lot of responsibility. Yeah. Trying to trying to get you back 80% of your income that's disappeared because 25% of the music industry is shut down. Where where are Universal and Waters and Sony? So how are they looking after musicians? And what you know, they're the, they're the people who are making 75%. Of, where are Spotify? You know, I mean, Spotify are paying. I read the other day, Danielek is being paid is worth 2.5 billion pounds. I read that as well. Yeah. Which, just to be clear, is more than Paul McCartney. I mean, that, I, I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't care how good your platform is. You weren't in the in Beatles, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's, there should be a point at which you just go, Do you know what? Actually, that's not actually appropriate, all right? Like, I, I understand that. I, come, I understand that Universal Music might be worth more than Paul McCartney, but the head of the head of Universal Music. <laughs> The single CEO who's on the payroll should not be paid more than Paul McCartney, all right? That doesn't make any sense. And that's not because I'm a huge fan of Paul McCartney and think that he doesn't earn enough money. It's just indicative of a whole problem you've got. Where's the money? You know, 75% of the money doesn't seem to be having any impact on 80% of musicians. How is that possible? Um, it's funny you mentioned Paul McCartney because... My next question was um, about your patrons and your supporters that you've got on your website. You've got a huge list, uh, yes. which if anyone wants to check it out, the link is going to be in the description so you can have a look. But you've got huge names like Sir Paul McCartney. You've got indie royalty like Ellie from Wolf Alice. You've got some really cool new artists like Ruse. Um, you've got radio presenters like Abby McCarthy and Steve Lamack. Jason Eiley from uh, the UK uh, CEO of Sony Music. You've got agents, political supporters, the list goes on. How important is it for public figures and musicians to publicly show the support to the cause? 
um, really, really important. Actually, it's one of the things that I think we've sort of um, learned quite a lot in this crisis is that um, we're very facts and evidence driven. But the truth is that if you want to get the media's attention, then you need to put Katie Tunstall on telly. And, and, you know, that that works much better than me saying the same thing, which they're not that interested in covering. doesn't matter how important it is. Um, within the industry itself, though, the way that we've developed that patron scheme is very angled at making sure that the music industry itself recognises the value and importance of what it has in grassroots music venues. And, you know, all of those patrons have been brought on board by having pretty much a one-to-one -one conversation um, where we've ensured uh, that, that the artist or, or the, the industry figure has a really clear understanding of what it is that they're, you know, to make sure that we're bringing people on board who really understand okay, this is part of the entire ecosystem that's absolutely the... We like to think of it as a pyramid. This is, this is the absolute foundation of the pyramid. All, all the artists, all the, everything goes through this bottom layer before it goes any higher up. And we've always made sure... Um, some of them are engaged differently. You know, some of them are... I'm not going to tell you that Paul McCartney phones me every day and asks exactly how it's going. It was pretty much a supportive letter and a message and sent us a check and, you know, great. Um, <clears throat> Joe from Idols, one of our patrons, I think he was on the phone for about an hour and a half explaining exactly what we should be doing. You know, that's quite, <laughs> quite, a, different, quite a different experience, you know, but actually he, he had very clear ideas. And we're, um, we're bringing quite a lot of patrons on in this crisis. And actually, artists are super engaged in this point. They super understand what's happening. You know, they, again, they have friends and colleagues who cannot work who do the lights or do the sound or, you know, push the amps around or whatever else it is people do. And so they're very, you know, very aware of what's happening to people on a personal level. If you could, obviously you've got like some insane names on there, but if you could have someone else, who would you, like the one person you'd like, I really want him to be in my Patreon list. <laughs> um, do you know what? I don't, I'm not sure actually. That's a great question. <laughs> the one I have, the one I haven't landed yet is Ben Folds, which uh, which is just a purely an accident. I think it was all sort of agreed about three or four times. But I'm quite a big Ben Folds fan, and uh, we I finally we managed to meet him through Neil Hannon from Divine Comedy, who is one of our patrons. And ben played a concert in uh, Belfast, uh, where we we went with Neil and went to go and meet him. And pretty much he agreed that uh, he would become a patron because we also have um, we have sister organisations in America, so it's quite important for us to have a patron, uh, American patron. Yeah, I guess Ben would be my personal one. The one that we need is Dave Grohl. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, the one we the reason we need Dave Grohl is that any time that Dave Grohl says anything about the music industry it is relentlessly tweeted and memed and <laughs> reposted <laughs> and and it just just absolutely but Foo Fighters released a t-shirt one of their um old tour t-shirts for us and that specific tweet they put out saying we're putting out this version of the t-shirt it's in our merch store now with the proceeds going to our Save Our Venues campaign I think it was retweeted 12,000 times 
So, you know, that, and we, we even before we even kind of had those conversations with him, Dave actually put out something three years ago, uh, which was just a really sort of random quote that he did somewhere. And it was something like, uh, small menus are where you learn everything, you know, you've got to play there or something like that, really meaningless. And even that on our, just the photo of him and that on our Facebook page, 2,000, 3,000 reposts, reaching yeah. an audience of half a million. People, I, something like Dave is absolutely trusted. Yeah. Trusted inside the industry because people know what it's like. Trusted by fans because he's got a long track record of supporting people. You seen that stuff he's doing with the young female drummer? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Super cool. But yeah. you can tell from the from his face and the way that he's doing it, he isn't doing that to try and get hits or, or shares. No. Like, he doesn't so, need it. He doesn't, doesn't even need it. it. He's doing it because he thinks this is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to have a great time doing it. And that kind of authenticity is, is yeah, that's the one that I would probably go for. So Ben Folds for me because I've been a fan of Ben's for 20 odd years. And then Dave Grohl, who, uh, I, by the way, I love the band, but it's just, Dave Grohl would be the one that you would go, that would make a real difference, having that person. Fingers crossed. Dave Grohl, if you're listening to this, yeah. you know what to do. <laughs> uh, well, actually, one of your patrons, and funny enough, you were talking about him at the start of the conversation, uh, was Steve Lamack. And I saw that recently in an interview, he said that you deserve an MBE for your work. <laughs> How did that feel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've spoken to her about that. <laughs> um, it's a weird, it's a weird, I mean, it's quite a weird way to, I woke up in the morning and my, my inbox was overflowing with people just going out, like laughing, and, like crying emojis and all sorts of things. And Music Week quoted him as saying that I should get a knighthood, uh, which uh, is quite funny. I did, I did tell him that it's not actually the knighthood that I need, it's the lordship. Because if you're a lord, you can get paid £300 a day just for turning up to the lords. So Lord Lord David is actually a, is a much better thing to head for <laughs> rather than someone like David. But um, that was an interesting, it was an interesting thing to say. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the worst type of anti-monarchist Republican uh, <laughs> on a personal level. I, I think it would be nice if the organisation, the team that I have, received recognition for the work that it's done, because the work that it's done has been absolutely extraordinary. I mean, in April this year, we calculated that 556 venues were in danger of closing down imminently. We're talking within the next four, four to six weeks. And we're now at the end of September, and so far 11 have closed down and nine of those we've managed to reopen and we're working on a 10. So, so far we've actually lost one. That gave me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. So I think, yeah, considering who does get, who does get MBEs and knighthoods and even lordships. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know if I give it to me, but I certainly think, you know, something in recognition of what the organization is probably not even from the award system. Maybe maybe the music industry should have a look around and think, wow, why all the music venues are open? You know, that would be that would be appreciated. That would be nice. I'd I'd like something where the team knew how how they bad deserve it. it. Yeah, they deserve exactly. it. Yeah. Um, I, like I was thinking the other day as well because 
obviously now everyone's talking about the pandemic and um, venues struggling because of the pandemic. But before the pandemic, venues were already struggling. Landlords, yeah. uh, just some of them not even being able to to cope financially. Is that added on or has that kind of like been put on the side and That's, everyone's just focusing on the pandemic? How? Everyone is focused on the pandemic, obviously. But I mean, the, 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 the factual point here is that it was quite annoying almost. Is <laughs> every year we hold, a, we hold an annual get together called Venues Day, where all the venues come to London, we all get together. And I said at Venues Day in October 2019, that we had finally turned the corner and in fact in January 2020 I would be able and I would be the first person who's been able to say in probably 20 years that there were more trading grassroots music venues in the UK at the end of the year than there were at the beginning of it which is a massive turnaround when we started this organization in 2014 35 percent of the venues in the whole of the country had closed down in the previous seven years and we lost about another 10% in the following. We managed to slow it down, but even then we lost about another 10%. But finally, last year, 2019, the number of venues actually would have gone up. And there are still lots of problems. You know, there's still not an economically viable model there. You've got lots of lots of our venues converted over to being not-for-profit entities. So they're like charities or community interest companies, which is great. Lots of community ownership coming in. But there's still lots of problems about the amount of musicians aren't paid enough for playing these venues. You know, I don't, I, it's a funny thing that comes up occasionally. You know, every so often a musician pops up saying, well, venues don't pay me enough. They don't. I absolutely agree. But we need to find out ways that they can pay musicians enough and that they can pay their own staff and themselves enough. 46% of the staff working in these venues are volunteers. Mental. It's mad, isn't it? And, that, and you look at what it, and again, back to that thing. After they've done all that, ends up with a 5.2 billion pound industry in which they have no stake. When Ed Sheeran plays Wembley Stadium three nights in a row, not a single penny of that ticket money ends up in your local grassroots music venue. Which is not how to go at Ed. He deserves everything he's worked for. But but the, we must be able to find a way that people working at this end of the spectrum, at the grassroots end, have some sort of stake in the huge success that result, results from their work at later years uh, and, we, and we certainly shouldn't be they certainly shouldn't be closing down I, i've got venues in the six years we've been doing this i've got venues that have closed down because they couldn't afford a thousand pounds for an insurance uh, fee or you know, just mad and you're just like wow this that size of this industry uh, that just shouldn't be happening you know we should be able to find £1,000 to make sure a venue doesn't close down or isn't closed down by its landlord because they can't pay its rent one week. You know, it's just stupid. That's mental. What, what can you tell our listeners, well, anyone that's listening or any music fans, what can they What can they do from their end to, to help save this live music ecosystem? Even yeah. if it's little, anything that they can do. Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing is to make, well, the first thing they can do is just really shout about it. Um, a lot of politics is driven by negativity. A lot of people will say how much they don't like something. <laughs> actually saying how much you like something is quite a political action, actually. Saying I really value this and it's really important to me, as opposed to saying I don't like that, I don't want that to happen. You know, Actually 
people who, for example, people who complain about the noise from music venues are incredibly persistent and boring and probably send a letter every day. People who really love the noise that comes from music venues very rarely send a letter. If I could, if I could change people's opinion of what they should do in their communities, it would be I would encourage everybody in every community to once a week write to a politician or a, or a councillor or, or you know somebody who's supposedly in charge and tell them something that they like or that needs changing in their communities because you would be surprised how few people do that. How few people, you know, people go, I'll like with a tweet. Well, that, that honestly has as much impact as you spent the time you spent doing it. You send a letter and if you print out a piece of paper and sign <laughs> and send it directly, in law, that MP has to reply. That's, that's a fact, you know, like, and you imagine, you imagine I mean, last, last year about 30 million people 30 million tickets were sold to go to gigs in these grassroots music venues. Let's say that there's only 6 million people who are mad and they went to five gigs at this level. Let's just go, let's say it's, let's say it's a million people, that, you know what I mean, <laughs> who went to the 30 gigs each. Yeah. Okay, if a million people sent a letter to their MP, I'm, <laughs> I'm telling you, they, they would do whatever those million people ask because elections are won or lost on, on that sort of thing. So being incredibly vocal, you mentioned earlier we have the Save Our Venues campaign. There's still loads going on with that. One of the things that, that people can do to support their venue, the, the venue they care about or a local venue, or pick one they like the look of, is we have the Save Our Venues merch site. And you can buy merch directly from venues that they get all the money and they get to keep the money that comes from them, uh, from those sales. And they've got, I mean, they've got fantastically designed hats and shirts and trousers and bangles and everything. If you're thinking like of, a bit of merch. <laughs> if you're thinking of buying a hoodie for because it's going to be cold this year, buy one from a venue. There's plenty of designs out there. You can just go to saveourvenues.co.uk. There's a button that says merch and there's literally hundreds of items in there you could buy. So you know if you instead of going to Primark, <laughs> yeah. I'm having a sent to you, you know, and, and that's that's an investment. You're gonna buy a shirt anyway, buy one with a fat and that uh, logo on it. I'd say the same about musicians, it's a great way to support musicians at the moment. Yeah. You know, let's let's all change our buying patterns a little bit. Instead of buying buying from Gap or whatever, just go and buy something from your local venue or buy yeah. something from your local musician. Um and just don't just don't shut up. That's my biggest thing. The way we've kept going since March is because every time that politicians thought maybe they've sorted this and maybe it was all over and maybe people have given up caring, there's been another campaign and another thing's happened and they've realised, no, people are still very pissed off and very angry and they want their venues to reopen. So if we can make that happen, that's going to work. I'm going to put, for anyone listening, um, in the description, you're going to get all the links to Save Our Venues um, and I'll put your um, social media handles as well if anyone wants to check it out. Um, and yet you saying that positive thing leads on to my very last question. Um, and despite the terrible and like weird situation we currently are in, um, I am really hopeful and I'm positive that we're going to get through this very, well, sooner rather than later. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'd like to leave on a high note and I'd like to ask three quick questions. So try not to think too much. What is the thing from live music that makes you the happiest? Tell us a funny anecdote. And share a positive message. Uh, the thing that makes from live music makes me happiest is, is is that point in the set where the whole audience is together and the band 
actually kicks off to a point where where it's a bit like drugs (laughs) 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 and that's that's the thing i really like uh an anecdote uh well, I've got, I, I could, we could do this for the rest of the evening. I've got, I've got, I've, <laughs> I'd uh, love to hear them, to be honest. <laughs> I've, got the, uh, I've got the one where I was woken up at uh, about 4 a.m. Uh, having put on the um, British touring band Long Pigs. Uh, my mobile phone rang at 4 a.m. We'd stayed up drinking with them till about 2 a.m. and then they'd headed off to their next show. And at 4 a.m. my phone rang. And Derek, the tour manager, said to me, oh, is, um, is Richie with you? And I said, sorry. And he said, Richie, the guitarist, is he with you? And I said, no, I'm in bed. He said, oh, OK, OK. Could you, could you check the venue? I said, what are you talking He said, well, we've just noticed he's not in the van. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> They'd driven for two miles, two hours north. Two hours. Two hours north before anybody had gone, are all the members of the band here? That's mental. So that's my, that would be my funny anecdote. I've got a lot, though. Uh, <laughs> and, and what was the last question? Let's uh, share a positive message. Uh, uh, positively, I think anybody who's listening to this, this podcast, um, you know, we've got as far as we have with this campaign, with the Save Our Venues campaign, because of people. You know, that's the truth. And, and that actually people are very, very much underestimate the power they personally have when they get together with other people to make positive change to the things they care about. And, and as you said, this is not over yet, but it will be over sometime. And the way it's going to be over in the way that we all want is if everybody listens to podcasts, gets involved, everybody says, no, I'm not going to tolerate my local venue being shut down. No, I'm not going to put up with you walking away from the situation. I'm not going to put up with these ludicrous restrictions on what they are and are allowed to do. I want there to be proper support for them. And positively, people have the power to make incredible change if they choose to use that power. Right. Thank you so, so much for all your insights, your stories, your help for taking part in this. I really, really appreciate it for your time. Um, and yeah, for anyone listening, I'm going to put all the links below. Um, you can Google your local venues if you haven't been to them. Find them. They are there. Uh, support them. Find their merch. Uh, check out your local band. Support them as well. Um, and you'll get all the information for Save Our Venues below as well. So thank you so, so much again. Uh, Mark David for for being here and thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode of Background Noises see you soon How do you-